Welcome to We're Totally Not Okay. But that's okay. I'm the sick one this time. Kaylee Legrand, and I'm <laughs> Tanya Bebon. Today, we have the pleasure of talking to our most favorite, beloved acting coach, Louis Bomander. Um, we go into storytelling, we get to talk about Bob Dylan and how he came about being in this amazing industry. I remember the first class that I took with Lewis ever, so years ago, I don't know, I guess like eight, nine years ago. Um, how old am I? <laughs> We're like 15, come on now. But yeah. Um, and I knew nobody in the class, and he was running monologue drills, and basically over the course of this class, I realized that his reputation was to not let anybody get through an entire monologue he would stop them at some point and I remember going up to do my monologue at the end of this first class hour and I remember thinking the whole way through when's he gonna stop me when's he gonna stop me when's he gonna stop me and I got through the entire monologue and he turned to the class held his hand towards me he said now that was good acting and then he turned back towards me and said, but you were acting. And I'm like, oh God, I like felt this fork in my heart just twist. Like, ah, he's always been the best at calling out bullshit. Yeah, I agree. That's exactly kind of like with me. I remember one time in class I was acting and he's like, how about you stop acting? Yeah. And I'm like, uh, oh, but I'm an actor. Okay. What yeah. do you mean by that? Yeah, it's yeah. cool how he... I like his approach because, um, actually for the exact same reason why I used to get super frustrated by his approach, he always contradicts himself when he's giving tools or tips or, or guidance from one actor to another. Yeah. And it took me so long to actually see how, how nuanced his guidance was because being a human being is so convoluted and gray and it's never black and white. So he's the one acting coach who I find, um, as much as he has his, you know, go-to tricks of the trade if he needs to lean on them, he comes from a place of psychology that means every time you approach a different scene or a different character or a different day. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, a different day, <laughs> because he's told me one thing one day and the next day something completely different. And did it still work in oh, both Oh, completely, areas? because yeah. you're a different person every single day, right? Mm. Yeah. It's weird. I feel like he's always on this other energy level. He's riding <laughs> another wave that allows him to see things that you just don't see even when you're prepping or you get into the room. Yeah. He's like a little magician. <laughs> He's a wizard. He's a wizard in our little universe of stardust and unicorn powders. <laughs> yeah, and as much as I love a handful of other coaches in Toronto alone, uh, as well as other cities, but right mm -hmm. now we're looking at Toronto, um, one of my friends put it the best way we were talking about Lewis one day driving home, and he said, Lewis is the least likely to fuck you up. Oh, oh my completely. god. That makes so much sense. 
because he doesn't get you to stick to these these specific tools that yeah you go to other acting coaches and you do pick up a couple of different tools and put them in your tool belt as an actor Mm -hmm. but you're not you're not just pulling out a wrench for every situation yeah or a phillips head for this other finite situation yeah like i remember one time going to a class coach will be not named and he told me every single time i'm trying to get a point across i like Bat my neck back and forth so I look like a fucking chicken. Nobody can see what you're doing right now, but, it's but I, I'm beautiful. looking like a chicken right now, Looks or like beautiful. a mother hen, and that scarred me. And I remember telling him that, and he's like, "No, that's just your quality. That's what you do. It's not." He's like, "Do you watch other people? That's how they get their point across. They do certain things." And I was like, "Oh yeah, okay, thanks." But like sometimes you get scarred, and yeah. It's, hard (laughs) yeah speaking of getting scarred I remember being so emotionally scarred not knowing unwittingly from a role that I played and I went to another couple of other coaches after I played this role but it was a role for which I was immediately ready to decline when I was offered it Hmm. I ended up accepting it and the director that I worked with was um, relatively green. What do you mean by relatively green? Uh, he had only directed a one other short film, oh. uh, and this piece was a collaborative piece with a, with a couple of other directors. It was an anthology piece, so this was a project that was going to be his first feature that he was a part of. Um, but as far as directing goes, being that green. Um, it, it did mean that he was, well, I guess it was more so his personality that made him open enough to allow me to take my time and, and allow me to ask so many questions and really dig deep into the character. Mm-hmm. But um, I think I was also a little bit afraid because he was so green and the character was so dark. Mm-hmm. And so it was just one of those characters that, that I didn't realize at first why I had an aversion or uh, why I had a resistance to play the character. Right. And it was because the character was so far away from what I wanted to associate myself with. She was psychologically unhinged and abusive in so many ways. And so I I wasn't putting one and one together at first. I just knew that I had a resistance to want to play this character. Mm -hmm. And once I took coaching afterwards, I realized that it wasn't so much about being worried that I could go there. I knew I could go there. It was the fact that I didn't feel like I had the proper tools to be able to drop the work and go home and not go, quote unquote, method with this character. Right. And as it turned out, by the end of it, I did, I did go, I guess, sort of method on that shoot. I blacked out. I repressed a bunch of the experiences on set. Um, Some of the memories started coming back to me. One of the producers, a close friend of mine, laughingly showed me text messages that I had sent to him in character, which I didn't remember sending. Um, Thank God we were such close friends and it was... Everybody was messed up shit. Yeah, very kind (laughs) about the way that I kind of... I didn't realize I was not dropping the work. Um, 
I even wrote a diary in, in the character's voice. Don't remember any of the stuff that I wrote in it, except for the her monologue, because they ended up taking... The director took part of that diary and said, this is, this is her, this is her monologue. And in the film now, my character had a monologue that was just part of that weird diary that I wrote. That's crazy. Um, yeah, it was really weird. And... And that's some of that unsafe... I don't know if I had ever told this story before, so that's why I wanted to share this story, too, for this episode, because we do mention it briefly in our interview with Lewis. Mm -hmm. So there's a little bit of the, the background about how I worked unsafely and didn't know... I didn't even know what I was supposed to be doing to stay safe, but throughout that shoot, I just treated myself like shit the same way that that character would have treated herself like shit, and didn't realize I was going on that downward slope. So it just felt so unhappy and so unhealthy by the end of the process yeah. and had to work myself back out of that rut that I had put myself in. So I find that Lewis's approach, um, <laughs> thankfully is not a method approach. No, it's, not at all. Yeah. He, he teaches you how to not just use tricks and tools to pop in and out of characters, but he teaches you how to actually find the associations, the thoughts that can quickly get to get you to where you need to be, and then never pushes you far enough to, to not be able to, to get back to point. yourself. Yeah, completely. Yeah, like his tools and tricks. I remember one time I needed to get to this point where like you said, you're kind of a shitty person and like you treat yourself like shit and sometimes he just makes you say things like, I'm not enough, I'm not enough and you say it three or four times and then you're in the zone of being like, I'm not enough and then like he's like, okay, you are enough and then he just gives you a hug and he's like, everything is gonna be okay because this is real life and that was a dream. Oh my god, don't get me started on real life and dreams. <laughs> because Lewis's favorite thing, one of, besides Bob Dylan, is dreaming while awake. That's what acting is. And that's what acting is. <laughs> oh my god, so many more Lewis stories I'm sure we could tell. We are going to keep this intro super short, because we did have a pretty lengthy conversation with Lewis. Because it's amazing. Yeah. We could talk for him for days. We could probably do, like, five episodes if we wanted to. Oh, he's coming back. We're interviewing him again. Oh, totally. Hopefully for a live session. That'd be so cool. <laughs> Stay tuned for that. For now, here is our interview with Lewis. Stories used everywhere in society from a conversation on a bus to a cinematic film to an advertising billboard. On a macro level, what would you say is the zeitgeist of today's modern age story? I haven't got a clue. Next question. Louis, <laughs> <laughs> tell us the secret of life. <laughs> Explain what? to us how the world works. What is life? <laughs> because I don't know anymore. Well, I will start off then by saying I've heard your origin story multiple times, how you got into this business and what drew you to the arts in, in general. I've heard it on multiple occasions and I've always gotten something different out of it um, we won't tell that story today but what I would like to know is what keeps you here why are you still here after all these years and what makes you believe in this industry why is it important I wouldn't know what else to do I think is the answer to that um, 
that question, I've heard that question asked of Keith Richards, and I've heard that question asked of uh, Dylan, and their answer seems to me, um, they both said, well, this is who I am, and this is what I do. That you never feel more at home than when you're, in my case, in the studio, uh, or in their case, on stage performing. Uh, that's when something of you is most alive. So that I wouldn't know what else to do with my life. I've thought about quitting uh, several times over the years, but every time I come to that point, I think, but there's nothing else I would rather do. And then I dig down a little deeper and I renew my purpose in it. On the topic of purpose uh, and this idea of who I am, who we are as people, that's been something that has been sort of, I think one of the reasons that keeps me in the realm of acting because that's a question I grapple with and especially as an actor, you're purposefully changing who you are on a day-to-day basis. You're stepping into the shoes of characters and becoming something that you would not just necessarily become in your own daily life. What is the purpose of us wanting, as actors, taking on other personas or lives or characters, stepping into other people's shoes and why do you think it's important for those people who don't, who just go to the movies and watch these characters? What are we bringing to them by taking on those challenges? Well, going back to the beginning of your question, when my son was very little in kindergarten, first day teacher asked everybody, what does your mommy and daddy do? And so doctors, lawyers, accountants, truck drivers, there was a whole range of jobs and uh, my son said, my daddy's a director. And nobody in the class knew what that was. So she asked him to explain, and I got the story from her because she had to call and tell me. He said, my daddy's job is to help other people be somebody else that's really themselves. Wow. Wow. How old was he when he said that? Five or six. And that kind of fits with your quote, acting is like dreaming while awake. Whereas it's real, but it's not real. Yeah, my son taught me that when he was six. That's so uh, cool. Yes, yeah, so I would say that. I think uh, the Hopi Indian have an expression uh, that all humankind is born lonely and alone. And the gift of the gods is the ability to share with one another our stories. Mm -hmm. So if you leave out the God's part, I think it's nature's way of saying, uh, how do we, who are so different by virtue of our birth and our individual conditions, how do we somehow find ways of communicating with each other and sharing with one another? And story is the answer to that. I haven't got my dates correct on this, but somewhere about 6,000 years ago, somewhere in that realm, maybe it was less, uh, 
everything was in an oral tradition, and then all of a sudden it started to get written down. So the Bible, the Ramayana, the Koran, uh, Bhagavad Gita, then Homer, Ovid, Virgil, all these stories started to get written down. And they turned out to be pretty much the same stories. So story is in our DNA. And it started around the campfire where we gathered and Grok and Bonk told the story of the hunt and then they got up and showed and eventually Grok and Bonk were too old to do it so they had their kids enact the story and eventually they all died so people were starting to tell that story of the great hunt when the village nearly starved and Grok and Bonk came back with the bison you know and that story and then they kept the you know, the head of the bison, so they could then wear it as a mask, to, and they all acted like the bison, you know, and, and the kids acted like uh, the hunters. And that was probably the first play. Hmm. Uh, the telling of the hunt, the telling of the tale. A hero's journey. So that, and we still gather around the fire. It's just electronic. Hmm. And so Sunday nights traditionally is now family night or TV night, and people all gather around the fire and hear the stories. And then Monday morning you gather around the water cooler or at work and you say, did you see this? Did you see that? Mm-hmm. So it turns us back into a village of sorts. On the topic of this shifting from fire to digital age, the development of our technological world, it has purported to serve as creating a digital community, a smaller, you can reach people faster and we are ever connected, but at the same time, it creates this digital divide, whether it is just kids sitting at a dinner table now no longer sitting, looking at each other face to face, or in terms of, on a grander scale, the West against the rest. The fact that certain cultures or societies or countries have more opportunity with this technology than others. How would you say technology and its development, where we're going with it, is affecting what your purporting story does, connecting us and teaching our next generations, having that sense of communication? I don't think it's really changed at all from the beginning of time. What's changed is the speed with which it affects that change and the numbers of people it affects. Whereas it would start off in a village and and maybe eventually travel to another village and then 30 years later to another continent because a ship came by from another country and then that ship went back, you know, so what evolved over time, so the great tales from China uh, making it to India, affecting India. Uh, I'm reading a book now about the introduction of paper from China uh, into the Mideast 
and how all of a sudden now everything could be written down. Hmm. So that was a new technology mm -hmm. that changed everything. Yeah. So the story being told now could be edited. The same changed. way we can edit our post before we post on Instagram or Correct. Twitter. Correct. Yeah. yeah. So then the printing press uh, changed the way our brains actually operated. And then entering uh, the media, you know, the TV age. So every technology has had a profound impact on society and the way in which we tell our stories. But I don't think the stories themselves have changed since the beginning of time pre-technology. I think when it was an oral tradition, we told the same stories we told once they got written down, once they were able to be printed, once they were able to be disseminated on a mass scale, uh, uploaded uh, by Amazon and, uh, you know, Apple and uh, Kindle and uh, iBooks. So it hasn't changed. It's just another library. It's just a very vast library. So the moving from theater uh, with gaslight and lamplight to electronic light was a big deal. And the evolution of sound effects and how we edit film from actual film uh, to digital editing. So it doesn't change the story, but the speed with which an image can be intercut with one another, the speed with which we can get more to market quicker, all of these things have changed. But I don't think the stories themselves have changed in 6,000 years. Bringing story to market. Um, halfway through what you were just saying, my mind was actually going towards the reason why we tell story. And since we've told the same story from the beginning of time, let's say, my mind was moving towards this idea of why we tell story, whether it's us trying to figure out what this new coming is, what the end of our story is, or what our future um, or if you want to think about, about it in determinism sort of terms, that there is some sort of reason or that there is a future that can be told. If that's like a way that we deal with our humanity just to cope, we tell stories. Um, but that idea of, of the reason why on, I guess, a spiritual level or a, um, a, a level of connecting, as opposed to now what we do with story as humans, we bring it to market and we've turned it into a business. So it serves this duality of, sure, economic justification and being able to be in a part of a business that seems to also push us forward. That's what we, a lot of people seem to work for the dollar as opposed to working for, I don't know, the passion. But it always was that way. Uh, the roving band of artists, uh, the, the acting troupe, the family troupe, 
uh, traveling from village to village, uh, playing in the market square with their hat and gathering their coins for the story they told, uh, hoping that maybe uh, royalty would bring them into the castle to do their story uh, for them. So it's always been market-driven to that extent. The moment it left the village and villages were independent of one another, once people started to travel and move this to that, that's when uh, it had a price on it. But art always did. It was just paid for by the wealthy. Some of the most... The Sistine Chapel would not have existed without benefactors. Some of the greatest architecture and work in history was created by great artists, but funded by the wealthy. The rich families uh, supported the arts. And so, yes, it's true they didn't get paid by audiences, but they were paid to do their work. The craftspeople in the market squares with their leather and their, you know, their paintings and their ingrained, you know, crafted uh, marble or copper or gold, you know, all of that was artistry, but it was all being sold. So the myth of the starving artist is, uh, I do it for my art man, you know, well, yes, uh, you do, but unless people want to see it, then you're not doing it for others, you're doing it for yourself. And art is meant to share, so I don't think you can truly call yourself an artist. You can call yourself a, a self-creator, and this is going to be a little rude, but art is, for others, is making love. Art for yourself is masturbating. It's <laughs> a valid point. That's what I would say. A little harsh, I would grant you, but... Um, but I think that's, but it's always been that way. I don't think that much has changed from a, you know, just the technologies change. Uh, artists are always reflecting what's happening to us. So as we are altered by technology, new technologies arise to tell the story of that. And we have ways of telling the story we have ways of telling the story in different formats. But there's also a, a, a whole other way of looking at it, which uh, I got this notion from Alan Watts, which is how we view history. Uh, you can look at uh, the Ramayana and the way it accounts for history. History is a cycle. It's a circle. There's reincarnation. So when it's hard to determine which king, uh, a Raj of 
was at what time in actual linear history. Because the Hindu do not look at time that way. To the Hindu, it's cyclical. Hmm. There are fast periods of history that go into eons, and then it starts all over again. So in linear history, that king that appeared in 14 AD is merged with the king in 15 AD. It, it, they have a cyclical view of time and history, so their stories are cyclical in nature. They do not have beginnings, middles, and ends because there is no uh, beginning and there is no end. So it's a whole different view of history. Mm -hmm. We, on the other hand, if you look at the Bible, starts with, in the beginning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it started here. Mm -hmm. uh, then Jesus is crucified, and we say, okay, we're starting time over now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we have B.C., before Christ, and uh, A.D., after, you know. But history is linear. You can look at um, and so-and-so begat so-and-so, begat so-and-so, begat so-and-so. And you go through several generations of begats till you get to important people, and then you start to tell that story. Mm -hmm. And then the next few aren't important. And then, but you find a, a lineage in, in there. So storytelling in the West is different than storytelling uh, in the East. Right. Would you say that in the idea where if time as a construct is circular instead of being linear, the stories of kings essentially matching up over time or reoccurring or their stories kind of blending into one another, is that because they played similar archetypes, quote-unquote? Yes, I suppose they had their own archetypes, but it was... Uh, it was fluid. It just didn't go from here to here to here. I don't. I haven't given it enough thought. I just know that there are these two very different concepts of time and storytelling. But you have so there are different forces. So Shiva, uh, Shakti are two opposite sides of the male-female dynamic, and in the end, you can see. A beautiful uh, sculpture of Shiva and Shakti together, uh, but then at their feet is Kali, and, and Kali is the, yeah, the goddess of death, or I guess the closest we could call the devil, but it's that force, and you see Shiva dead at her, her feet only to be reborn. Mm -hmm. So there's no tragedy in the traditional sense. Hmm. Because of the rebirth? Yeah. The Buddhist philosophy of uh, their... Well, it, the four tenets are... Um, all life is suffering, 
the source of that suffering uh, is desire that can be overcome and then the fourth is the eightfold path of how to achieve it so we're in the West it's all about desire all our stories are about I want this and I'm going to get it mm -hmm. I want to save my child I'm going to go to the moon I'm going to find a cure to cancer I'm going to break into that bank it's all about desire and the satisfaction of that desire right whereas in the east it's not quite the same it doesn't have that same it doesn't have purpose in the traditional sense so we have to divide you know how we look at it but I guess our our focus is on the West. I was just pointing out that there's a whole other way of looking at story mm -hmm. and a whole other way of looking at what the goal in all of it all is. Um, if the goal is to be reborn, not what can I acquire until I die, you know, it, it's just a whole different strategy as to how you're going to live your life. Yeah. It sounds like storytellers from the East and the West use similar principles. Uh, made me think of, I think it's Robert McKee's story, where he talks about, from a writer's perspective, when you're setting up the story of the hero and creating that ebb and flow of um, success and the pitfalls, the pain and the gratitude, or the um, uh, achievements, you are creating those wedges as moments of expectation and result mm -hmm. and the greater the expectation the stronger that impact of result whether it matches up and it is a success the hero gets the savior uh, or is faced with another harder triumph yeah, there's a harder fall if it's a bigger expectation correct so it sounds like they're using similar principles of desire and pain which also comes into the classroom. Tanya and I take classes with you and have taken classes with you and coaching with you on a regular basis. And those are some of the ideas that come up as well. This idea of playing to a pain, what is this person's pain, but also what is this person's or this character's want, mm -hmm. the desire in the scene. Yes, and that's storytelling essentially in the West. Okay. And Robert McKee and uh, Blake Snyder in their own different ways have identified that. But the you know even in uh, China and <clears throat> Japan, um, the Kabuki theater uh, it, it's an eight-hour show. Like you go and then you get up and you have tea and you have a meal and you come back in and it's it's an eight-hour show. It's a big commitment to a story. Yeah, that it, it because. It's it's ongoing and it's cyclical. There's it in some ways doesn't matter where you come in. Mm. You're coming into it. Um, where you come into it. It, 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 it's not linear in its construction. That just made me think of a show down in New York called Sleep No More, which is. Um, sort of a modern day 
um, reappropriation of Macbeth, and it's a live piece of theater, and it is done by like Cirque du Soleil performers. They're incredible performers, and it's done in an old sort of Victorian-style hotel, so it's multiple levels. All the audience members have to go in with masks so that they are anonymous, and only the performers are in costume and maskless. And it they tell the story of Macbeth on repeat as the night goes on, but all the characters are moving throughout the theater, this whole hotel, so you need to anonymously choose who you follow. It's like a choose your own adventure, yeah, mm-hmm. that, but because it repeats, you can see more of the story and how it connects. Yeah, and that, uh, that's been around for a while, that uh, way of telling story. But movies like Crash and Closer and um, In- Inception, I think, uh, this intersecting realities, mm-hmm. you know, which is still there's desire in each one of them, but the element of randomness and luck uh, has entered into the into the mix, which is uh, still linear but fractured. Mm-hmm. But that couldn't be done without the kind of editing skills we have these days. Mm-hmm. The in a film. In a film. Yeah. How we can intercut time and space uh, in a way that the theater never could. It also sounds like it's dealing with these two ideas of, I guess, philosophical ideas of how people approach life. That in one way, in a deterministic point of view, there is more of a linear sense. There is... A result there is an end there is something that is coming and it is fate as opposed to this chaos that exists the randomness that is uncontrollable and maybe scarier and I think that the randomness is we're starting to see more of that implemented into storytelling these days my assumption is that it's because people are more open to the possibility that we don't live in a deterministic universe well it's uh it's hitting us straight in the face. Uh, the speed of change is so rapid now mm-hmm. that there's the principle that, I forget his name, but uh, the equation is essentially technology uh, doubles itself every X number of years, but the speed with which that acceleration, the amount of change that's happening, the projection is change at the speed of the smartphone will be happening every six months by the year 2024, 25. Yeah, I believe it. It feels like it's already every six months. <laughs> but the changes are, are, are so rapid, so it's very... There's a uh, book called The Shift Age uh, where he refers to what he calls legacy thinking, which is the belief that you can use the past to help you plan for the future. Okay. Which has been bedrock way of thinking for as far back as people can remember. Mm Mm-hmm. 
experience. You use your past to, but when things are changing so fast, and or uh, Dylan has a line, um, the future is already a thing of the past. Uh, you know, is catching that. You know that it's already. So if you have legacy thinking, uh, you can't use the past to help you with the future. Now, there may still be human values and uh, things we struggle with, which are part go back to the story, and that seems to be somehow safe. You know, that's like the frame that is carried forward with humanity. But how we tell it, um, the angle on that story is always changing based on the times in which we live, because that's what an artist does. They look at now and report hmm. uh, from that uh, place. But more and more science fiction movies are becoming documentaries in advance. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they, you know, if you look at it, you look at them. Um, I remember watching Wall-E, the little animated film, and my mind was blown. I'm like, does anybody else realize that this is the future? It's not just a cartoon. This is the future. This is where we're moving to. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's true. The Matrix. Um, it's what's so different? It's, uh, well, that's the headspace I've been stuck in lately, yeah. which you and Tanya have heard much about already. Yeah. This existential crisis that I just live in. <laughs> yeah, it's but the purpose of art. I mean, we're, you know, we're talking about technology and how it affects and where its story is. Oh, you know, hasn't changed uh, really since the beginning of time. It all, in, I guess, the West, um, if we look at the Greek theater, and it starts as really the priest and the priestess, them telling, them coming, and the chorus or the choir. Mm -hmm. And... It was the choir, really, and then uh, Aeschylus said, what if we take one person out from the crowd and make him our hero, and the interaction there? And Sophocles said, well, we could take two or three out of the chorus and have the chorus just comment on this, and Euripides saying, ah, oh, fuck the chorus. <laughs> we don't need that so much anymore. Yeah. We'll make the chorus just a seer or an outside force saying, don't do this. You know, so Tiresias in uh, Oedipus, in a sense, becomes the chorus. Mm -hmm. And the gods that descend from the ceiling just to give some sort of potential moral outcoming or a consequence, yeah. that, that warning, the foreshadowing. The foreshadowing, yeah. So that's what um, obviously Aristotle picked up on when he wrote the Poetics, which laid the st structure of uh, plays 
for the next really 2,000 years or more. The well-made play, the four-act structure, mm -hmm. is all based on Aristotle's poetics. Yeah. People like Robert McKee and Blake Snyder did what Aristotle did, what makes a great play great. They looked at film and television and said, what makes a great film or television show great? And they <clears throat> sipped it through and uh, plucked out all the key elements and wrote the books accordingly. So we should be writing the book on what makes a great YouTube video great. <laughs> at some level, yes, I would say somebody. Shorter and shorter stories. Somebody is probably doing it as we speak. I'm, I'm sure it exists. I'm sure there's a YouTube video already that explains how to make a great YouTube video. Oh, totally. Just Google it. Yeah. 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 Just go into YouTube. You can find it. Exactly. I'm not sure if it would be a reappropriation of what Robert McKee and Plato were talking about, but... Uh, will there be some elements of some consistent elements mm -hmm. to it? But with the changing of, of technology, actually, I've been listening to a lot of podcasts about AI, and there was a panel at the ROM um, to, to discuss AI and where we're going with it. I think Peter Mansbridge was hosting the panel, and one of my friends who's part of that panel, I was I was talking to him about whether or not there is a hopeful outcome. Or, in his view, it seemed like he um, thought that we were basically doomed. And I don't know if it's just because as a storyteller, I have that natural inclination to this hope that the hero has throughout his journey that makes me think that even though AI is developing to a point where we will potentially have conscious computers, we, I mean, already do, in a sense, but the fact that our consciousness as human beings might not be able to keep up with what we create digitally, well, electronically. That's what uh, Elon Musk uh, is suggesting and a few of the others at the enlightened end of this is that the only, you cannot beat it, you can only join it. Mm. How does and the storyteller join it? filmmaker join it stay ahead of that curve well now you're talking about the third matrix film aren't you we've been through this so many times mm -hmm. and before he died uh, Stephen Hawking uh, talked about the possibility of uh, other dimensions and we are a simulation mm-hmm which makes me think of that weird state that we get into as actors, this idea wherein we'll, we're dreaming while awake. It's something that makes complete sense to me when I hear you say that and when you are coaching us in the classroom or in a self-tape. Makes complete sense, but when I try to reiterate what actually happens when we quote-unquote go there as actors, that seems elusive to me. I, it's difficult to put it into language. Yes, but it's also difficult to put a dream into language. Mm -hmm. Exactly. No, not all things can be explained. That's your job as a coach, and you're able to do it. You've made a living out of being able to understand the process that actors take to delve into that essentially dream world. 
and recreate it on a level that is convincing to other human beings? I don't, I think, I wouldn't characterize what I do now so much as that, as help people remember how to do it. Hmm. You think it's something that we're born with? Yeah, I do. I do. On the topic of dreams and and your your quote unquote non method of approaching this craft, um, is there? I think dream is the word that I, word that I most closely associate this process with of acting. Do you would you be able to describe? what your non-method is? Do you have any kind of label for it? Yeah, I've been forced to come up with one. Right, right. <laughs> and it's helping people to do consciously what they're doing unconsciously anyway. Because if the goal is to be authentic, the only way to be authentic is to be authentic. And then the only way to achieve that is to learn how to do consciously what you're doing unconsciously anyway. Hmm. So that's really at the heart of it. Whatever skill I appear to have is not insight, but uh, an ability that I've developed to see things that would normally be lying dormant in or lying under the surface in an unconscious place, learning how to make it more conscious. So when I'm sitting and teaching, not all the time, when I'm at my at my best, I guess, it's that uh, I, I'm not even there as a as an ego, mm-hmm. you know, as a separate, I am the teacher, you are the students. At the highest level, it's just where I feel it as something as one organism, uh, and I'm I'm just the spokesman at that moment for the group. I'm just the voice of what's happening. Would you consider yourself a guide in that sense? Uh, I suppose that's a word you can use. I don't. I find it difficult to how exactly to name it. Obviously, I'm an acting coach. I'm an acting teacher. I teach and coach actors. I have achieved a certain age where I'm older than most people that I know, so I have some knowledge and. I hope wisdom that appears to be worth sharing. But it's really for for convenience. We say I'm an acting coach. Uh, I'm a teacher. Um, if we want to get a little more uh, esoteric, then I'm a, I'm a guide of some sort. Um, I'm an elder, I'm a, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of names for, 
you know, over time of history for people who do what I do. Mm-hmm. But I think that makes it more noble and highfalutin than it really, really is. <laughs> you know, I, I just, I'm just pretty lucky I get to walk into a room and people actually care what I have to say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's pretty, well, okay, I'm lucky. You know, that's pretty much... The cool way <laughs> of looking at it. Um, I know that I've gathered knowledge, tips, tools, tricks over the years, um, and one of which being um, one of the reasons why we started the podcast, and I know that I've spoken about this with you before, having worked unwittingly, dangerously on roles and stepping into roles that psychologically are not characters I would want to or relate to on a regular basis in my everyday life. But being able to step into that role and authentically become that. Mm-hmm. Um, I've worked on characters that I had trouble letting go of and and going home, dropping the work and going home and, and stepping away from it at the end of the day. So spending, say, a, a month on a character to use a character that everybody knows and, and probably understands this process with is like the Joker and the story of how the Joker can overtake an actor and what ha- has done to actors. Where, what would you say you, what's the care that you take to try to make sure work is done in a safe manner? I did. Well, I don't, I don't push. I, leave a exit strategy for the actor. I don't demand they go there. I don't psychologically manipulate people to go to uh, dis, um, disengage the safeties. Mm-hmm. I just don't do that. Could an individual... So that reduces the um, odds of that ever happening. Uh, could it happen? Yes. But it... I think it happens uh, all the time. We get caught up in the roles we play. Um, we write our own narratives about our own lives. I can... You know, the narrative I appear to be writing right now is that... Uh, I'm making that slow retreat into retirement. See, that's just a narrative I've created. And it seems like a decent one. It's a good one. Uh, I don't know if I believe it. You're Carter and longer than anybody else I know. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's a narrative that I'm writing. Right. Who cares whether it's factually accurate or not? Do <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? It, it, as long as I continue to write that, that will eventually become the truth. Sure. <laughs> you see, that's the thing about it. Mm-hmm. You know, and so we, uh, and we watch new players coming into the scene, and we watch um, Stephen and Daniel uh, working and so much now, and the emails coming in, so the new little story point is that they're now asking for Stephen or Daniel or if Lewis is available. 
you know. So I mm-hmm. put that out there with some combination of pride and terror. <laughs> because on the narrative that I'm spinning, it's a great story. <laughs> on back here where I'm not spinning that narrative, it's like, holy shit, what's happening? But that too is its own narrative. Uh-huh. It becomes, okay, I'm getting old and it's time for the old guy to move on. It's the world belongs to the young and I'm slowly going to be, you know, forgotten and disappear into the, you know. Well, I highly doubt that. Well, it becomes, I don't think it will ever be lacking in respect, but it's, it's okay, Lewis, I got this one. <laughs> <laughs> well. I, no, just, don't worry, I, I got it. Uh, um, you know what, you don't need to be there. <laughs> So there. But that must be a comfortable, cool feeling, like to have your son say, "I feel comfortable enough stepping into the role of a teacher or the role of a coach." Or the. Well, I'm not so. Daniel and Stephen have their own narratives. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not. Um, they haven't necessarily bought into mine, uh, nor have they necessarily know that that's the narrative I've written them into. They got their, right. they got their own thing going on. Right. Well, okay. speaking of your transition, you are, um, maybe you can tell our audience members what you are stepping into because you now have another studio that is not just used for coaching and um, self tapes and classes. It's you're now moving into a, a realm of creation. What are your goals and hopes with uh, that work? Well, I don't think of it quite as um, definitively or as um, focused as that. Okay. But I see things unfolding. I don't make things happen. I've never been good at making anything happen. <laughs> I think that's part of your own internal narrative. <laughs> I haven't. anything. I, I, things tend to happen. Yeah. Uh, you know, back to my core story. I think the thing I followed was I didn't want there, back when I decided what university or college or what path I was going to follow, the only thought that made any sense to me was that I didn't want there to be a separation between who I was and what I did. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to work five days to get two days. I didn't want to work uh, 11 months to get two weeks I never that's what I didn't want right. I didn't want anybody to tell me what to do uh, that so I followed that which led me here which led me there into different things but somewhere back in the recess of time there was I thought about writing and directing film and television. I have maybe three or four treatments lying dormant that are like going back maybe 30 years I never really got to. Mm-hmm. So that was something I considered. I did uh, train to direct 
television and I, I was on the set of Due South and uh, was a training director on, on that. Uh, fortunate to have Paul Haggis as my training <laughs> director. Um, so I did that. Um, I dabbled in casting. I uh, wrote things, I've shot things, like little short film things. Uh, all not very good, um, but it was stuff I was toying with. So in a sense, I'm getting going back to where I began, but that's part of the cyclical nature of it. I'm it seems to be unfolding that way. Uh, if you could pull one of those ideas, those treatments, and stories that you've had in the back shelf of your mind, if you could pull it off the shelf and create it right now, but you can only choose one, do you know what it would be? Uh, yes, I know what the mega one would be. Yeah, I do. Is it a feature or is yeah, it? Yeah, it's a feature. It's a feature, and I know what a secondary one might be. And if it was going to be a little short film, I know what that would be. If it were a series, I actually have one of those that it could be. You probably but have stories that fit into every category. Yeah, I, I guess I do. I. But I really don't have that kind of energy anymore. The thing about being, the best thing about being young is that you're stupid and you have a lot of energy. (laughs) (laughs) And you think you have time on your side. (laughs) Wow, yeah. That's one of the you don't know any better it's a glorious frame of mind you, know, you have no idea um, what's going on and that's what enables you to be able to do it mm-hmm. yeah. um, that fearlessness yeah. you wouldn't learn to walk if you were terrified of falling down the stairs <laughs> yeah. uh, so most, you know, when you're young, you look at the world and it's an open highway. I look at the world and I see the cliff. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> yeah. My yeah. mind works similarly. <laughs> I see the cliff, you know. I, 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 it makes you want to slow down a bit. I'll keep speeding towards it. <laughs> because Unless you believe the whole world is simulation and you can just jump and trust the fall. Yeah, I suppose, but that's not one of my now. <laughs> uh, no, I, I, I don't think that would even make any difference to me, hmm. knowing or not knowing um, that. So that would be what I... So, But whether that happens or not, uh, I really don't know. I have. Uh, there is a bit of a uh, tear, uh, or not a, um, my wife 
is ready to spend more time traveling, doing more. She wants me to be around more. And she's been a saint about it, um, mostly. But I think she'd want me around more. Hmm. And I understand that. And so, and I take that very seriously, so that too is factoring into my thinking. Thinking selfishly, I probably could pass out on this couch and get up in the morning and keep doing this. You know, I don't think I would care much. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I don't feel, is where I feel more, I feel more alive with this than anywhere other than now with my grandchildren. Right. That's the only thing that competes with this in terms of um, that feeling of feeling alive. Mm-hmm. That's it. That, yeah, that's the only competition to this. Everything else is a, sometimes a close second, but um, <laughs> is second to those things. I think that's what story makes me, that's why I'm drawn to it, makes you feel alive. I think that's probably why people go to seeing movies as well. You feel a little to, more um, alive. A little more alive. Yeah, it's, um, again, going back to the Greeks, when people would gather, it was the first churches, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's where, and early, um, a lot of the early religions, you would, people would gather and tell the story, the story of the Bible tonight, or the Ramayana, or the, you tell the story mm-hmm. of the Koran, whatever that, and today's chapter is the following. Mm-hmm. And you would hear that, and you would walk out of the church, the synagogue, the mosque, a little more emboldened and empowered and feel less alone because you shared with the community and were better capable of facing your your week ahead. Mm-hmm. That in some ways has been replaced by the cinema. And we gather around the altar and, uh, you know, to pursue the metaphor to absurdity, the, uh, the popcorn is the body and, you know, the Diet Coke is the blood, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and Just saw a great ad in my head. <laughs> but that's, you know, that, and we leave somehow feeling a little less lonely, a little less alone, which brings me back to the Hopi Indian. And what all humankind shares is our loneliness, and the gift of the gods is our ability to share that with one another and feel less alone. So. Well, we're thankful that we got to sit and share this conversation with you. I don't want to chew up too much more of your time with sitting and talking for over an hour now. Um, Is there any other... I mean, I could sit and talk for hours, but is there any other questions or points that you wanted to address for? No, I think uh, uh, that's it. Um, 
I saw one question on your list. Uh, what's my fascination or preoccupation with Bob Dylan? Yes. <laughs> I highlighted it at one point. Tanya leaned over. She's like, okay. ask this. Um, everybody uh, needs uh, a mentor. Mm-hmm. And you don't necessarily need to meet them, know them, or even want to. I have absolutely no desire uh, to meet the man. As far as I can tell, he's a real prick. Um, <laughs> right, sometimes don't meet your heroes. You know. Um, but the one thing uh, uh, he's always been uh, 10 years ahead of me. So in an odd way, he's like an older brother. Uh, I see, hear and see and experience through his uh, music and through his life um, what it is, what the road ahead is. Uh, like he's now. It's an album that's maybe 15 years old, but um, there's a song, um, it's not dark yet, but it's getting there. <laughs> and it's, that, that's it, like, he's there, I'm just arriving there. Right. Um, I'll, I'll be with you when the deal goes down, you know, and it's... Uh, I watched uh, my dad be there for my my mother, being with her when the deal goes down. And I can see it with my wife too, you know. So to have someone who's actually articulated that uh, to that point with that kind of searing detail, uh, that's. Uh, real helpful in my 40s uh, there was um, the line I've used it in class too I ain't looking for nothing in nobody else's eyes and I thought that was like the coolest strongest like damn the moment you want anything from anybody they own you Uh so uh, and then earlier I'm just like cherry picking, but he not busy being born is busy dying. Wow. Yeah. And the need to re continually reborn. I mean, he went his so many different incarnations. Now he's just this old blues guy. And but what an evolution along the way, and never and I guess. The, quintess, the the perfect story of the artist and what uh, inspires me is people have, uh, in 1963, he was like 21, and he arrives in New York at about 1819, um, just hitchhiked basically from... Um, Hibbing, Minnesota to New York with only one goal meet Woody Guthrie <laughs> that was it and he didn't know much about anything else but 
1963, uh, he had already written some of the major anthems of our times, or those times. And people don't realize that he was on stage singing just before Martin Luther King went on to deliver the I Had a Dream speech, he and Joan Baez. And all those white people who were in the crowd that day, they weren't there to see Martin Luther King. Oh, wow. He was in Greenwich Village, all the university students, so all the, what happened on university campuses uh, at NYU, Columbia. He went and performed at Berkeley, and then what started to happen at Berkeley and the California colleges, it spread. That, uh, he was at the forefront of all of that. Not he himself, because he had no desire to be part of it, but his music. And at the, uh, that Parkland um, march, mm-hmm. uh, uh, what's her name, uh, Hudson, Helen Hudson, or, or the singer, Jennifer Hudson. Right. Mm-hmm. Ended that whole uh, event with the choir singing the times they are changing. Come, oh. congressmen, senators, uh, don't get you know, but not standing in the way, get mm-hmm. out of the way yeah. if you can't lend a hand for the times they are changing. You know, um, come writers and critics who prophesize with your pens, you know. Don't write it down yet because the wheel's still in spin. Okay? Yeah. So, but, so that was that guy. And in 1965, he put on an electric guitar and got booed mercilessly <laughs> all through Europe. First half, did his old stuff, could hear a pin drop. Second half, he came on with the band, who that's how they got their name. The band was his band. Yeah. Uh, and they wouldn't even let them tune up. They would boo and hiss and through the, the whole song. And like while they were doing, and he traveled all the way through Europe um, doing that. Anyway, there's a famous concert in, uh, where in, uh, Martin Scorsese in his documentary, uh, No Direction Home, uh, actually has a a clip of it. And he's about to do a song, and from the crowd you hear, Judas! Wow. And there's like silence on the stage, and he looks up, he says, I don't believe you, you're a liar and turns to Robert Robertson in the band and says, says, play fucking loud. <laughs> That's in the documentary? Yeah. That's amazing. And that, to me, is like the quintessential artist. At yeah. the top of your game, to change it all. Mm-hmm. And then he completely retired and spent four years raising a family in the country. That's why Woodstock happened to Woodstock. 
because that's where he was living, and they were hoping if they did it at Woodstock, he would come. Right. So he moved. <laughs> of course, which is why he probably captures your attention. Yeah. So. so, but and then, you know, religion, and but through that he developed so folk rock, like the fusing of lyric and rock didn't exist before him. The fusion of rock and gospel, him. Country and rock, him. At every stage of the way, he recreated new forms of music. Hmm. But he never stopped evolving and changing. And there was a period in his life where he couldn't play. He was always a legend, but he couldn't fill a club of more than 500 people. But he kept, he was on the road all the time. If he had to play to 500, he played to 500. Mm -hmm. I heard you talk about him in terms of that ever-evolving self, the transfiguration. Yeah, and so it just kept evolving. Now, of course, he's he's back, I guess, on top. He gets a Nobel Prize and, you know, um, he can play for 20,000, 25,000 now, uh, again. But it doesn't really much matter. The was who was so that in the end is really so. There's the individual lyrics and uh, lines that have stood out that have kind of clarified the future for me and clarified my now, mm-hmm. and just the courage to, uh, while being booed and hissed and people fleeing you be able to turn and say, don't, not say, please come back, but say, play fucking loud, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and that, uh, to be able to do that, like, Jesus, uh, it's amazing. Yeah, if you haven't seen um, uh, No Direction Home, you should watch it. Yeah, I haven't. Uh, no, I haven't either. Uh, or some of his uh, press conferences from 1965, uh, where he's just, it's just a total uh, put on. He doesn't care, you know. He just is talking uh, and the questions they're asking him like how, so how many um, rock poets are there today? And he goes, "Mm, I think six. (laughs) (laughs) Simple as that. Or, Or how would you describe, you know, yourself, uh, I see myself as a song and dance man. <laughs> right? So he he taught the Beatles how to treat press conferences. And, you know, and of course they they just sent them all up too. Didn't didn't take it seriously. Right. So that's the answer to that one. Cool. In a nutshell. Now we know. Thank you. Thank you. And we are back in the studio. How inspirational was that? He's great. I love Lewis. So for our one cool thing, this is probably going to sound kind of corny, but Kaylee and I have been sick for a few episodes now. 
can't you hear the stuffiness? Oh my god, and we put out one me- episode per month, basically, which means so that we've been sick, sick for like... Every month. Or like a quarter of a year. Yeah, we just don't sleep. It just falls on the same day as recording. It We're really does. That's life. Anyway, so I went home this weekend, and the first thing my mom did was give me a hot toddy. That's not my one cool thing, because... It's still delicious. But anyways, so I learned this trick. If you're really sick and all you're doing is coughing, put Vicks VapoRub on your feet and put socks on, and it helps you from coughing. It's freaking amazing. That's my one cool thing. So next time you're sick and you want to sleep and you're having coughing fits, put some Vicks VapoRub on your feet and put socks on and go to bed. I'm telling you, it works like a charm. Oh my god, so first you have to get comfortable with wearing socks to bed. I know, that's kind of weird. <laughs> it was weird, but like, it helped. I do like to wrap myself in multiple blankets and try to keep myself as warm as possible when I am sick, like cocoon myself. Yeah. So, there we go, that's how I'm getting so on board with the socks on the feet. side to the cool thing is like, I've noticed if I like, sweat it out, it helps me get out of my sickness faster. Yeah. So like, I feel like putting socks on keeps your heat in. And you sweat it out a little bit. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's my one cool thing. How about you? Well, um, before I get to my cool thing, <laughs> uh, I took a burning hot bath today. Did you come out like a lobster? Uh, well, I took a shower afterwards because I can't take baths oh, without me? taking showers yeah. afterwards because yeah, it's gross. Like you're sitting in your filth and you're like, yeah, yeah. wash it off. That was I so don't... relaxing, but now shower time. Yeah, I know. I don't know what, like, I I'm don't know how people much. can just take a bath and then get out of the bath. It's just gross. Or like in the Victorian eras when like the queen would shower first and then like, and that's gross. But like you're sitting in other people's filth. Like imagine that, but we're only sitting in our own filth and we still need to shower. That's why they threw the baby out with the bathwater. Maybe the baby was the last to bathe, and by the time it got into the bath, it's like, well, it's fucking tainted now. Throw it out. Bye, baby. Bye, baby. Bye. (laughs) Gross. So my one cool thing has nothing to do with uh, gross babies. (laughs) Or maybe it does. I don't know. It depends on the story. It depends on the hero. (laughs) So I recently listened to an episode of Waking Up with Sam Harris, which I've started... So amazing. Yeah, I've started to become more and more obsessed with him. There is actually, not this episode that I'm about to mention, it was the one that kind of precedes it, not chronologically, but content-wise. This episode, it's episode number 67, and it's titled Meaning and Chaos, and he interviews Jordan Peterson, who is from Toronto as well. And the, the first time that Harris interviewed Peterson... Um, because they mentioned it at the beginning of this episode. They're like, mm, go back and listen to that if you haven't heard this first. Oh, and I smart. did, and it was so frustrating. You'd understand why if you go and listen to it, but they just, they, they both stay so steadfastly stuck to their own philosophies. And I'm just going to put it out there. My personal opinion is that Sam did not see where Jordan Peterson was coming from. I fully side with Jordan Peterson, and I've listened to a lot of his lectures and I've followed him a little bit over the past couple of years, especially with the booming media all over him and the controversy (laughs) here in Ontario and Toronto specifically at the University of Toronto. Nonetheless, this episode where Sam Harris interviews Peterson, they talk about um, kind kind of interwovenly throughout their discussion, the idea of a hero and the archetype of a hero and Peterson describes the archetype of a hero in a really interesting way that 
um, I know that he has studied Jung in the past, but I've never heard somebody describe the archetype of a hero using an analogy of like his son's shitty hockey team with his <laughs> his son's non-friend, I guess, just this other player on his son's team. Some who asshole. Was just, yeah, such a dick, was a great player, but wouldn't share the puck. He was a puck hog. He blamed everybody else for circumstances once they lost. The worst. Um, and then his father stepped in and was like, yeah, it was the ref's fault and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, example of deplorable parenting. Um, but he uses this example of the hierarchy of a hockey team um, to obviously be extrapolated upon and spread across all of the universe and all these different hierarchies that exist in our world um, to talk about where the hero fits in and how you can't just be that person who is talented at the sport or no, whatever it may be you have to also be somebody who is playing in a manner that gets you invited back that people want to play with you mm-hmm. that there are different things that actually allow you to move up that hierarchy and he describes the hero the archetype of a hero as he or she who is most likely to move up any given dominance hierarchy in mm-hmm. any given time and in any given space right which I just, I love the way that he described that. And he uses a lot of, he, he steps into different sorts of religion to even relate back to the hero, like the Taoist symbol for yin and yang and how yin represents that dark unknown, the chaos of the world mm-hmm. and how the hero has to not only be able to move up this hierarchy of uh, dominance, but he needs to also be that one who is willing to go out into the unknown, the scary world, and to collect these tools or lessons and bring them back to the collective, the community, um, turning that yin into yang, which is the known. Mm-hmm. Um, so that hero has to be one who has one foot in the yin and in the other foot in the yang at all times, um, or at least, I guess, throughout this story, the right. story of their lives. And speaking of story, he also talks about how story is that first path through which truth, quote-unquote, is expelled into the world. And I won't get into the meaning of truth because that's that first episode that Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson talk in and that's what they can't agree on. They, they, they can't agree on what truth means to, to them. <laughs> um, but he talks about... Peterson talks about how um, we think about the way in which we develop truth and how we might think that philosophers are those who are putting these theories of truth out into the world. But he points out that the ideas of truth that we deal with today, that we actually accept and and grapple with, I guess you could say, mm-hmm. they were first implemented by storytellers. Um, I won't get into detail on, on the difference between philosophers and storytellers uh, and how they put truth out there in the world because I think you should go listen to this episode because it's just super cool. So that's my one cool thing. Yeah. Go listen to it. Ooh, and I know that I've already said one cool thing and I know that I have no voice so I'm going to try to get this out before I lose my voice but there is an article that we posted a little while back on our Facebook page. We shared it from The New Yorker and it was all about how the gigs that we seem to have these days, instead of having like one career for the rest of our lives, mm-hmm. the fact that we have so many different entrepreneurial paths, it was talking about how this gig economy 
celebrates working yourself to death. And there is one short passage I do want to read from it. Um, I'll put another link in our show notes so you can go back to it because this is kind of the opposite of, um, or I guess not the opposite, but something that I want to make sure is mentioned in conjunction with this idea of the hero of the story going out and slaying all the dragons and doing all the work themselves against all these insurmountable obstacles. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all cool and great and we all think we're superwomen and that's why we get sick all the time. But, <laughs> but it was such a poignant article that the New Yorker put out um, and this passage I'd like to read. At the root of this is the American obsession with self-reliance, which makes it more acceptable to applaud an an individual for working himself to death than to argue that an individual working himself to death is evidence of a flawed economic system. The contrast between the gig economy's rhetoric, everyone is always connecting, having fun, and killing it, and the conditions that allow it to exist a lack of dependable employment that pays a living wage, makes this kink in our thinking especially clear. Human interest stories about the beauty of some person standing up to the punishments of late capitalism are regular features in the news, too. I've come to detest the local news set piece about the man who walks 10 or 11 or 12 miles to work, a story that's been filed from Oxford, Alabama, from Detroit, Michigan, from Plano, Texas... The story is always written as a tearjerker with praise for the person's uncomplaining attitude. A car is usually donated to the subject in the end. Never mentioned or even implied is the shamefulness of a job that doesn't permit a worker to afford his own commute. So hold that in your brains when you're going out to take over the world and be superwoman as well. You don't need to do it all and you don't need to be perfect so true. All you need to do is recognize that there is still this system at play that is trying to feed you that story, that American dream that we spoke about in our last episode as well. And you need to make sure you're not driving yourself off the cliff to try to achieve it. And I feel like a lot of people are. And it's sad. It's scary. Because that's not what life is for. To me, at least. Yeah, man. I know, I do it to myself. I know that's why I'm sick right now. That's what I do to myself, too. I mean, we all do it. We go so hard thinking, mm, I can get by with, like, four hours sleep a night, and I can make it to all the networking events, and I can still have three jobs on the side. No. Why has it gotten to this point? Everybody... Last Friday, I had three jobs in one fucking day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's... It's American dream, eh? Yeah, ma'am. But you know what? No matter what you're going to do, even if you're going to stand up against that system, against capitalism, against the man, if you got something to say, you know what you got to do? As Bob Dylan says, (laughs) play fucking loud. (laughs) 